Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn. Big old jet airliner. Don't. Oh, my God. Uh, all right. See, this is where you hit me with song lyrics. Um, it's a Steve Miller song. It uh, is. I, um, I mean, I, let me do, I, it one more, one more, do it one more time. Uh, big old uh, jet airliner don't take me <laughs> uh, i told you i can't i can't do lyrics my, my brain just freezes so i'm gonna i don't know well that would be um away from the double loop podcast uh, you don't want to be you don't want to be taken away from the double loop podcast uh-huh. uh so uh, if uh if you're looking for some of those older episodes um then uh you can Donate even just a dollar a month to uh, to gain access to all that stuff and uh, help me and Glenn out with this podcast uh, at the same time. Well, yeah, I, I've got one for you here, but yeah, but I I can't. I don't know what Take it me is. too far away. Take me too far away, huh? Yeah, I uh, I never have got that in a million years because again, I I recognize lyrics, but I can't. I told you if I was ever on that That's game your blind show, spot. yeah, yeah, where I, I need to. I need to be. I need to remember that. And uh. no, it, but it's funny. I mean, I don't mind the challenge. Every now and then, maybe. Right, right, right. But but for the most part, yeah, my brain will simply freeze up, and like you said, blind spot. That that's exactly it. Cannot do well, those. That that actually plays well into uh, as a little, oh, yeah? you know, theme uh, towards the paper we're going to talk about. So uh, good, po- good point. Yeah. yeah. All right. What do you got for me? Well, mine's along those lines too. Uh, you may remember a great phrase from the '80s: "More than meets the the eye." Yeah. Ah, yes, a little Transformers action. <laughs> However, uh, that's not what I was going for. It's oh, oh, more than meets the average listener of the podcast who has contributed to our that's, Patreon. That's what it should have been. That's what it should have been. Um, how you been? We 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 talked last time about being busy, and and we still are. Um, we're both about to take off on a flight here in the next couple of days. Uh, you to Switzerland, Switzerland? Yep. yes, yep, uh, and me to my own private Idaho. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, maybe I should have. Th- okay, I got to stop thinking of more song lyrics to throw at you. Oh, I for- but, you're right. That is a song. I forgot. It's a B fifty two song. B fifty twos. Yeah, yeah. I was um, thinking of the movie uh, with was it River Phoenix? Keanu. Yeah, Keanu and River Phoenix. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I always wondered which came first for that. Anyway. Um, t- uh, I think the B-52 song came first. You think so? Okay. Yeah. Distractions, distractions. Um, uh, so uh, this is uh, – what's what number of time is this for you teaching in Switzerland now? Oh, I'm uh, fifth maybe. Fifth time maybe? Um, any, any new things on your on your travel agenda that you haven't seen yet? Uh, yeah, this time actually it, it is a little different. Normally what I would do is, is teach a week in Lausanne on the French side and we would have the course in French and then a week on the German side and then have it in German. You know, I've been teaching the last couple of times with Alice Massey or sorry, Alice White. And so I know she's left already. So she's a, a, should be arriving already and I'll be leaving tomorrow. But what will be different this time is that we're spending all of the time on the German side. So I'm going to oh. use that as a jumping off point and go more into the, the German speaking of the uh, part of the country. They don't normally get a chance to see um, Zur- you know, up, up, up way of Zurich and Interlaken in, in that area. I'm almost always on the French side in Switzerland. So it'd be kind of nice to dig into the German side and get back to my German speaking roots. I, I'm better at speaking German than French or, you know. A lot of other languages. Well, wow, that's um, it's very, very continental of you to have more than one there to go with. Um, are you going to go any further into uh, Deutschland, or, or oh, just no. it, just no, into no. Switzerland? It'll, okay. it'll, yeah, just just Switzerland. I only have a couple of uh, free days, so won't have a, a ton of time to explore, or even to Liechtenstein. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just that's on that side as well. It is. Uh, no, I will not be okay. visiting or invading Liechtenstein. <laughs> that's a 
That's a reference uh, to a, a different episode. Uh, but yeah, about a year ago uh, or, or so. That's that's one of my favorite stories um, related to Leighton Prince, <laughs> <laughs> tangentially. Uh, but yeah, okay, that's that's uh, that's fantastic. Um, I I'm not going to be able to explore much of uh, the Boise area, but um, I always like being able to travel to Idaho. That's where my my grandmother's family is from. Mm-hmm. After departing from from Germany, uh, my great grandparents eventually settled there in well, not on that side in eastern Idaho. But uh, uh, it 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 feels very um, much like home, and that, that I might run into a relative at any moment. Um, so if if anyone knows someone named Henscheid, uh, especially uh, up in in the Idaho area, I'm probably related to them as a hmm. second or third cousin. Oh, that's cool. Um, there aren't many Henscheids outside of uh, <laughs> my family. Is that H-E-N-S-C-H-E-I-D? It, uh, it, it would usually be E-I-D. E-I-D, E-I-D, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll look, for, I'll look for that name over there just if I see anything over there. You know, that's, you never know. The, um, that's actually – that name is more up in the Munster area mm. uh, of Germany. Um, my my mom's side of the family, the Lokers, are actually more in that Switzerland Germany border. Uh, okay. L O C H E R. My yep. other German side of the family. I'm not okay. sure if you could tell. I'm, I got a little <laughs> German in me. <laughs> um, no, that's that's exciting. Um, I do uh, want to circle back around real quick to uh, mentioning the um, the Patreon. Uh, and thanking even more people for for contributing and and helping us out uh, as we continue to slowly grow and expand uh, out our 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 show, especially to, this week to Mallory and to Dawn. Thank you very much for uh, adding in your contributions to the Doublet Podcast. Oh, uh, Mallory! Oh, that hi, Mallory. That was really sweet of her. We need to to get back onto a a a normal. Uh, issue like you said a couple weeks ago sync up our our cycles so that we can uh, get stuff out on a more regular basis and and even do more of those comparison things together online yep um but uh that's uh that is our goal here over the next couple months is to to find that time where it all fits together better um with you know me traveling more with a new job you traveling more doing more teaching and all sorts of stuff it's a it's a challenge, but we are up to it and uh, excited to uh, to do so. Yeah, and uh, now that we have this website up and running, we can also make some other things available as well. Which you know we'll have to get into how we can parse this out between the Patreon supporters and then some other things that maybe we want to get up there. So uh, feel free to visit this new website and hope you um, will find it. Yeah, uh, doubleloopodcast dot com. Yep. Uh, and thanks again to Michael uh, for for helping so much with that. Uh, and uh, don't forget also at Double Loop Pod, uh, throwing the Twitter thing there as well. Yes. All right. Fantastic. Well, today we are going to cover a new research article that came out in and was published in Cognitive Research principles and implications. I'm sure all of you have that on your shelves as standard reading. <laughs> <laughs> now I I. I love when they go to these. I mean, for for us, this is just you know not exactly a typical a typical public publication spot for us. But you know, again, you, you you publish where you can and where the the information is relevant. But it's an original research article by our group, uh, and the order is going to be a little different. It's not going to be Ullery at all. It's going to be <laughs> Austin Hicklin first. Uh, so it's Hicklin Ullery. And and just if any listener cares, uh, I my, my suspicion for this is because Brad Ullery was retiring from Noblis, and so I assume that this was one of his last publications on his way out. So he's still getting an author credit here, but eh, it looks like Austin probably has taken over, and with with Brad on his way out, he will be sorely missed. He's uh, absolutely he's he's, uh, he's a great guy, and uh, I don't know if you'll see him. At conferences at the IEI, I don't know if you'll continue to go, but look for the the very tall, skinny guy that looks kind of like a grizzled prospector with tall, bushy hair. Um, he's uh, 
angular features on his face. He, he looks like a he, statistician. He, he, <laughs> look for the guy that looks like a statistician. Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But he will be sorely missed. He's a great guy. Maybe we should try to get him on here now that he's retired and can say more things and be blunter. Oh, that'd be great. I yeah. think I might have mentioned that to him at the conference last year. And I think he may have been at least tentatively okay with the thought. So we'll, I'll follow up and see. Okay. Well, all right. So Ticklin, Ullery, Tom Busey, for everyone that knows Tom Busey out there, you know, he's this cognitive psychologist out of um, Indiana University um, in Bloomington, and uh, Maria Roberts from the FBI and Joanne Bascabula from the FBI. So the usual crew, it's the usual crew in a different order with Tom Busey. Plus Tom Busey, yep. Right, so there we go. So there are the authors. The name of the paper is Gaze Behavior and Cognitive States During Fingerprint Target Group Localization. So this is basically eye-tracking research. And, you know, Tom Busey has been doing this for a while, which is why I'm guessing, again, that he was brought in on this because he's sort of known for setting up these eye-tracking studies. But this one was combining a few things and really digging into how examiners perform eye-tracking um, I, or how examiners perform their tasks, sorry, tasks and subtasks in the comparison phase of ACE-V while collecting data through this eye tracking device. And it's, it, it's, it's very informative about what the examiner is looking at, where they're looking at, how long they're looking at something, how often their eyes go back and forth between the latent image and the control print. And it can really tell effectively what the examiner is looking at and, uh, you know, information about where their eye goes, which informs us about their comparison skill, perhaps, and the kinds of information that examiners take into account. So if I recall, I think it was 122 examiners participated in the study, and they got tens of thousands of data points on examiners and their, basically, their, their movements of their eye. And the way that they set this up was that they had either a full latent print and a very clear control print for them to look at information. So you have the, this condition where the latent print's there, it's, and it's a latent, so there's a little bit of distortion, but you have all the latent print context. In other words, whatever target group you're looking at, you have the pattern type, you have your delta, you have all the surrounding information. That was one set of experiments. And then another set of experiments involved what they called the cropped latent. So they took a very small target group, cropped it down without all that context information, without core, delta, the rest of the latent print, and had examiners look for that target group in the control print. And one of the things about the study was that they told the examiners up front all of these target groups exist in the control print. They're all they're always there. All of these are from mated pairs, and they specifically say there's no tricks. Uh, we're just simply seeing how quickly and where you look, you know, how quickly you can find this target group and where you're looking and so forth. So all the examiners going into it knew the the, the target group is is in fact present. It's just do you have a lot of information to look, you know, to look and find that and context? Or is it cropped down to a small target group, and that's the only information you're you're really using to look for that target group in the control print? So uh, I'll jump in uh, here with a question for you, Eric. Overall impressions of the paper? Did I leave anything out? And what were your your overall impressions? Loved it. Oh my god, I love this paper so much. I I uh, it is it's I just I love it. It's. Um, I would just add in just to clarify a little bit. Um, the in the th- there are three main types of tests. Uh, in all of them, the controlled print was a rolled image, uh, rolled fingerprint. That was the exemplar you were comparing it to. The unknown you were comparing from that you got initially for analysis was either a latent, a flat impression, or a cropped image of the flat impression. Um, and for the two that the full latent and the full plain impression uh, you got a little yellow box saying this is what we want you to look for to do your analysis in pick your target group from in this box and then look for that uh, in the uh, exemplar print so they, they really focused you in on look here for your minutiae uh, for your target group and then find that 
I just every part of it uh, <laughs> from from how important chords and deltas are yet again uh, to what they dug deeper into the you know common sense things of how we do the work that are just revealed for this back and forth looking to you know going through different nope that's not it not it not it not it oh here it is double check double check double check all right I'm good I, everything just makes so much sense to how comparisons actually feel to go through yeah and you know i your reaction was was pretty uh, strong there i it's funny if if we had reversed this and you had gone over the the paper and given a quick rundown and asked me my initial reactions my response would have been oh my god i loved this paper this this paper was such a joy to read, and, the, and we're gonna, we're going to go through it. I mean, obviously, but from the beginning, through the data, through the whole thing, I, I just I loved this entire paper and went, "This is great." I mean, be, there's really there's really nothing controversial about it in the sense that oh, we've got error rates or these issues or whatever. It is simply demonstrating expertise. And how experts do what they do. And from that perspective, it's really cool. And uh, I really love how well written it is, how well researched it is. Uh, you know, sometimes you and I get into these controversial papers written by people outside the field, and it's just such a slog, and you have to read through and take a lot of things with a grain of salt. <laughs> but this is just so well written and so well focused on here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's how we conducted this study. These are the data. And, well, and, and, and there's just the none of that baggage that we often have to deal with. And one of the things you talk about a lot when we review some of these papers is going back and looking at what already exists. And oh, throughout yeah. a huge portion of this paper, um, there's, you know, it, it's, it's brief, but there's a little summary here and there uh, as to what in eye tracking has been done before, what in, you know, spatial analysis in these. Yeah. Other related fields, what in uh, there's a brief look at the what's it Kundal's deconstruction of detection. Yeah, I'm like I don't know what Kundal's deconstruction of detection is, but you know this this is a you know one of the base papers to kind of build from to get up to this point. So there's a little uh, portion of a paragraph that kind of goes over that and just you know, referencing a few different things to then move on to what came out in this paper. Uh, and uh, yeah, really well done throughout. And um, heck, in that section, there's even a uh, a Where's Waldo analogy, and uh, yeah, you know, I love my analogies. Yeah, and they actually deconstructed a little bit on how it is similar to Where's Waldo, and that in fact actually how it's quite different from the Where's exactly. Waldo problem. And I yeah, I all right. So we're talking about the beginning here. I love this beginning, and I don't know how much. I felt this was a lot of Tom Busey here. There, I mean, he's just so knowledgeable in this area and bringing him him on board. Um, I don't know how much is specifically his stuff. I, my guess is quite a lot here, and it really the paper just benefits from. It. Like you said, we're not cognitive psychologists, so they took the time to explain all of this, all of these terms, all this other previous research, and there's just so many great references. I felt. Like every one of those, I could click on and just spend time looking at, and and uh, man, kudos, great, great job here. So let's start with that. Uh, where's Waldo um, uh, analogy? Yeah, uh, and in this breakdown of when you're detecting things, when you're doing a task, not just latent prints, but something similar to this, there is a all right. What do I got to work with? Just assessing what you have overall scanning or right, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Recognition. Is this it? You know, is this the thing I'm looking for? And the decision, you know, double checking, is this the really the thing that, um, am I sure that this is it? Like you're saying the where's Waldo analogy. One of the similarities is that there may be decoys out there and for where's Waldo, there's other things out there with red and white stripes that might you know catch your eye and take you away from Waldo, just like in fingerprint comparisons. There's often target groups that look similar or may match initially, but don't work as you expand out from there. Uh, one of the big differences, though, is that in latent print comparisons, you often get this idea from uh, the ridge flow or from the big features, cores, and deltas of where to look in the exemplar. 
Yeah, um, the paper refers to that as context. As a context, exactly. But in Where's Waldo, it's drawn where you know you don't know what area of the print Waldo is going to be in. There's none of that context given in a, in a Where's Waldo puzzle. And, and there could be no clues because the puzzle would cease to be as, as entertaining and fun. Right. So you have to scan every little bit of the puzzle, whereas with Layton's most of the time, although there are those instances where you've got those <laughs> tiny non-context latent prints that you do have to end up then searching every orientation, every possible area of the friction ridge skin. And here they, they did both ways. They did it one where either with a full latent or a full flat impression, you got all the context, uh, even though your target group area, the little yellow box didn't have the core delta in it you could still see where it fit in relationship to the core delta that was in those images. Yes. And then when you had the, just the cropped box, uh, you didn't have any of that information. Now, you did, we were told that the orientation was correct, so you didn't have to worry about you know, spinning it in your mind or on the screen to fit how this little curve could fit in many different places. Right. Knowing that, okay, it just curves slightly down and to the left, that's either going to go just left of a, a delta or on the outflow of a left loop. So you, you kind of have this idea of where to um, where to focus in, even though you don't have the full context, you have a, even with just the cropped area, you have a little bit of context as to where to start. Yeah. Uh, and they, they clarify in here that um, they, they wanted to pick latents where when they got cropped like that, they had some information, like there's some curve to them. They're not just straight. ridges where you wouldn't really know where to start looking but they not too obvious where you actually had the core delta contained in that target group box they they picked the um, target group boxes in between those two extremes yep very good point now moving past the introduction they get into all right so why are we doing this kind of study what what value does a study like this have and what are our goals and i thought that was actually pretty cool too and that once you understand why they're doing the study, you can see why they went about it the way they did. First, they wanted to, in, exactly as you've talked about, assess the effects of context. How does that information help examiners about where to look for targets, where to look for features? The, um, the extension of that, especially as you, you, I'm sure, appreciate, is that when you have an erroneous exclusion and you missed it, why did that happen? Why did you not look in the right area at all? Did you look at that area but didn't spend enough time there? Did you skip the target group? Did you look at the wrong target group? I mean, all those kinds of things, which gets to their second goal of deconstructing the localization task, is really to understand once you do find that area or once you are looking in that area, what's happening to your eye? What is it doing? Is it, in fact, looking at the right area? How long did it take to move there? What what sort of little tiny things are going on, and can that tell us something about the comparison task? And again, does that lead you down a correct path of perhaps an identification or you know an erroneous exclusion? And then lastly, um, you know, from all of that, can we develop analytical tools and have um have ways to describe what fingerprint examiners are doing during comparison tasks and improve, of course, that expert skill. I think it's worth talking at least briefly about how this this study worked um, with the the eye tracking software. Uh, yeah. So there's a little picture in the paper. Again, if you search the title of it, it should come up. I'm pretty sure I remember reading that this is on an open source journal. Yeah, all all the stuff that they've been doing has been open source. Right. So um, you've got this big uh, screen in front of you, uh, and there's a chin rest that you place your chin onto hold your head really still and then there's a some calibration tasks you have to do to look at different things on different parts of the screen so that this uh, camera uh, can zero in on what exactly your eyes are looking at and they had that calibration before and after each uh, each task that you're asked to do to you know try and get in this you know really accurate measurement of where your eye is going uh, basically taking a uh, a thousand measurements a second um, of, of as your eyes going all over the place. So 
it's it's pretty pretty neat stuff uh, hey, to to be playing with. Side note: uh, Isn't there a scene in Blade Runner where they do something like that? I'm trying to think. Oh, oh that's, or or was it? Um, it's maybe. during the mind the test on for like uh, if you're a human or not to, to test. Oh, for the, yeah, yeah, the replicant test. Yeah, the replicant test. Um, what's that called? It's like got some like German uh, words. Oh, you're the right. Voigt, the Voigtkopf test. Voigtkopf Voigt Voigt test. test. Yes. Um, I'm pretty yeah. sure you yeah, Roy, not Roy Batty, the other one, um, the big blonde, the other big blonde dude uh, was uh, had to have his head held still while he was shown weird pictures, kind of like a Welcome to the Jungle, yeah, you know, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, the future is now, Glenn. Yeah, I was. I think I'm thinking of a different movie now that I'm. I think I'm. There, there's another movie I was probably thinking about called. I think it was called Looker, but it doesn't matter. It was an '80s sci-fi oh, movie. Oh wow! The 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 Michael Crichton movie. Uh yeah yeah. <laughs> I that's on my list of things to watch here soon. I don't think I've seen it yet, but. Um... Yeah, I think it's, that it's, was... it, it's all about where men look in, you know, in, at a woman and exactly where their eyes, how long they dwell at certain parts of their face or bodies or whatever. So they're trying to create the perfect woman, the perfect model. And so it's, it's, it's sci-fi. It's, it's using this data to create the perfect you know, female image or whatever. So, that sounds very so, much like a Michael Crichton thing. Right. So that, so that model can be better at selling this product. You know, or be more effective. So the model, you know, will cost more money than your your street model with imperfections. They're engineering their models to be perfect. You know, attractive specimens for whatever product they're selling. So anyway, anyway, again, diverging. Also triggers another sub. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, his squirrel moment um, of uh, uh, this BBC show I watched, QI, um, just about just strange facts. Uh, quite interesting facts um, that men tend to, uh, at first glance, whether it be another man, a woman, or an animal like a dog, first gaze goes right to the crotch. Hmm. And I was like, huh. I mean, there's there's scientific research where it goes, oh, you know what? That does seem right. And then there's something like this where it's like, I, maybe, but I don't, I don't just recall having this instant crotch look at every man woman and dog that uh, i pass on the street so who knows but uh gaze detection is everywhere it seems yes including 1981 <laughs> sci-fi thrillers uh okay so um it's got these really cool pictures here in the paper of you know these little green dots going all over the place. I'm looking at Figure Three as you see, like the the eyes go back and forth and and uh, you know slide across the the image and then stop and kind of focus there and then you know go up a ridge or then or count over. You can even see like ridge counting of one, two, three, yeah, four. Yeah, that was actually really cool to see that. It really is. Um, and the one here on Figure Three, you see the the yellow box area of here this is this is where the target group is looking here for target group but then you see all right i got the core and it's down to the left from the core so as kind of a an anchoring uh, method that the examiner is using right so even though the the core is far from the target group they're still using that core data it's it's clear that they were trying to spatially locate that target group with a reference point, an anchor point, yeah. the or a focal point, like a core. So jumping down to figure four now, man, this was the first one of the, the first like big pictures that was just like a an aha moment. You know, I'm going I know I'm going to have this in presentations that I give for years coming going forward. Yeah. Uh the this is basically uh sample number one and then the three different versions of sample number one, where the left image is either the latent, the flat, or the cropped flat, and then the the known or the image on the right is the same rolled impression all three times. Right. And for the latent and the flat, you you can see the core and delta, but the box is basically just 
left of the delta on the left loop. And you see these green dots of where the majority of examiners focused in uh, on their gazes. And in the, uh, the full image, the exemplar essentially, for both of these samples, same kind of thing. Those, those green things are right in the box, narrowed in. There are very few areas where people looked outside of that. And if they did, it was to go over to where the delta is, just outside of the box, um, or to check up where the core is above it. But now you take away that context and just have ridges that curve from uh, the top down into the left. There's these these green areas that are in the outflow of the loop, the left loop, that a majority of examiners focused in on, but they're in the wrong area. Mm-hmm. And there's a big orange area where 25 to 50% of examiners focused in on along that, that innermost recurve all the way you know, down and out. And then you have the big group in the correct area where examiners finally found that right matching points uh, just left of the delta. Uh, it just, you can see examiners going, okay, it should be around here, around here, no, around here, no, how about over here? Oh, here it is. And then, you know, going from there. It, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, and because they're also tracking the amount of time in certain areas and how long it took to do the actual comparison before the person said, I found it. I mean, clearly when it came to the no context and the little tiny cropped latent, the the time went up, you know, exponentially because they don't they don't know where to start. Uh, without any reference point, you don't go right to one area or the other. Like you're saying, they kind of they literally went all over the map. You can see looking at the image just how many different areas they went to throughout the entire latent print, without any any context to say, hey. It's probably in this area over here. So not only are, like you said, are the number of different areas they looked at increasing, but the amount of time to do the comparison, the amount of time spent in a certain area increasing. And, you know, it's not evenly distributed throughout the entire print for these cropped images of where they look. Sure. It's focused yeah, in point. on areas where the flow matches the cropped area, like going to the right of the delta where the the flow yep. is basically would be perpendicular to what it is in the the cropped image um you know, almost no one went over there but um definitely a higher rate where you know in the areas where the flow matches up yeah there's a there's a logic to it showing that examiners are again using clues and trying to match up ridge flow and level 1 detail and logically where would i expect to find a recurve. Where would I expect to find a bend in the ridges like this? Where would the ridges be more parallel and flat? And it, it's obvious that there is some knowledge of that and some recognition of where to look for those things. In the text of the paper there, it says that for the the first two with the context, you had less than 4% of the fixations outside of the correct area to look. Um, so and 96% of the time, they're they're kind of right on target. They're exactly. Their fixations were right in that box. Uh, but with without the context, 36% of the fixations were outside of the correct area. That's huge. That, that's, yeah, that is a hugely significant difference. And But it totally makes sense when, when looking at what we do and how we try to find the correct target group. So uh, you're talking about the time that the uh, an, the analysts took during analysis and comparison is charted out here uh, in figure six. And essentially, it's kind of interesting in that the analysis is basically almost the same for all three, with maybe the, the plane impression, which is with context and also a clearer image, having a little bit less than the other two. Um, but the... Uh, comparison comparison time of you know looking when you finally have both images side by side how long it takes the examiner to say all right i got it i found the um the matching area in the known is significantly longer uh it's about uh on let's see the middle is about 30 seconds for that task as opposed to oh about 10 or 
15 seconds for the plain impression or the latent impression. Yeah, and that that makes sense again with what we'd expect for examiner behavior. I love this paragraph here. Some examiners started fixating on the right image yep. 150 milliseconds after it was presented. That's you know, incredible. Re- regardless of what task type, you know, it goes up there. They were they were looking at that new image super quick. In about half of the trials, the examiners first fixated on the right image um, within 250 milliseconds after it was presented. At approximately half a second, some examiners had already turned their attention back to the left image, the unknown. And after two seconds, examiners in about half the trials um, had done this. 15% had already gone to the right, to the left, and then back to the right. Um, it's just, just showing how fast you know, examiners can zero in on the correct area, go back, check what they were you know, supposed to be looking for in the, in the latent, and then back into the exemplar uh, to you know, confirm that they've, they've focused in on the right area or not. Yeah, uh, I'm going to make a couple of comments a little bit later when I talk about some other research. But it is incredible how quickly examiners are absorbing information. And, and when, you know, one of the earlier Busey studies that measured that brainwave function yeah. and how quickly examiners, uh, and as this paper is showing, in less than a second, are boom, right there. Got it. They're all, they're, again, I love the demonstration of expertise. That's what these papers do. They don't, they don't say anything about error rates. They don't say anything about our accuracy. They don't say anything about, in this case, this statistic. This, what it says is there is something to expertise. And, and that it can be useful when it comes to some of the things we've seen before in cases where you're questioning whether or not an expert really you know, can do this or should do this. Well, there's a skill here. There's a genuine skill that is being demonstrated. I like this too. Um, so just looking at the first, your first three fixations on the right image. Within the first, those first three fixations, in 78% of the latent trials, the examiner already found the right area. 91% of the plain, 91% of those plain trials. Again, you're looking at two inked impressions, but still, uh, you had already zeroed in on the correct area. But then it did drop to 40% for those crop trials, showing that there is going to be some trial and error without that context. Yep. Uh, so there were some errors in this case. Uh, essentially, that the examiner was presented with the um, either the latent, the flat, or the cropped uh, image, and then couldn't find the corresponding area in the in the known. They weren't necessarily coming to a conclusion of like exclusion. It's just in the time frame of the examination, uh, they couldn't find the, the corresponding uh, area of that rolled known print to say found it. Yeah. The, the, your point in the extension here is if this was a real comparison, they may have missed looking in the correct spot and could have potentially erroneous excluded if they never got there. Exactly. And this happened in six of the 675 trials. So fairly low, really low, but not, not too surprising because um, the, uh, the latents, so to speak, were either big enough to contain a core delta or very clear coming from an, basically an inked um, known impression. So either high on both quantity and quality or at least high on the quality scale. Um, and given, you know, to the examiner saying this is the correct orientation, you don't have to worry about that at all. Yeah. So that kind of it does make sense as to why the error rate, quote unquote, for this was uh, was very low. I'm going to – can I jump in with something here too? Oh, this, sure. The quote I, – I love this quote and then I'll give a personal story. It says <laughs> – Haste does not appear to have been the cause for the four of the six apparent errors, right. as those trials took longer than the median comparison time. Uh, the two trials that were faster than the median time were made by the same examiner who had faster than median comparison times overall. In other words, one of the examiners kind of goes very quickly, rushes a little bit, and just missed it, and and made two of those errors. So one examiner is responsible for one-third of those, we'll call them errors, failure right. to find the, you know that, and generally went very quickly. 
but the other ones spent more time on average looking for it. I just I want to I want to pull back to something that really was frustrating to me was the 2010 CTS test, which in my laboratory when I work for the state, you know, five out of six of us missed that one, and I missed it specifically. And I know that I spent more than average time on that one. I spent more than the usual amount of time looking for that one. Right. What was so frustrating was during a root cause analysis, and this is just now a complete side vent. I, I, one of my I remember biggest, the story. Yeah, well, one of my biggest problems with root cause analyses being done by people who aren't trained to do root cause analyses is how much they inject or project their own thoughts or feelings or ideas or here's what I think might be going on and so now that I think this is the root cause was that one of the people doing that root cause basically said well you didn't spend enough time looking for it I was like bullshit no I spent a lot of time looking for this more than average yeah and and you know this this kind of reminds me of exactly that that some of the misses aren't because the person was going too fast although here's an example of where one person may go too fast when you have an examiner going no 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 i spent a lot of time looking for this one they they didn't rush through it they didn't look in the right area or if they did they didn't spend enough time there or didn't recognize it all these these de- deconstructed tasks that you were talking about earlier, the orientation, recognition, you know, those sorts of things. I, if Reading that really reminded me of that feeling of, hey, look, sometimes you can spend a lot of time on something and miss it. And that doesn't mean that you're bad or not good at your job. It happens. And it apparently happens about 1% of the time. I, I, I hope in the I haven't gotten to through the appendices here yet, but I hope that there is some more breakdown um, into you know these ones where they were missed, uh, what kind of you know which features and specifically what which minutia in the target area box were selected as the target group to be searched. Mm. Um, versus ones where they got it correct. It just I I. I I'm interested in a little bit more breakdown, and I hope that some of that is in the appendices, which I haven't uh, made it through yet. Yeah, good point. Um, but uh, just echoing your comments there, those were the same, very same comments that you know we heard last summer um, about the research test and uh, ah. the the one sample that was tripping many people up. Uh, you know, you heard from a lot of people saying, you know, I I was done with everything else you know, the first day. And then I kept comparing that one for like another three weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is another portion of it, which sometimes, you know, I think, I think you need to develop a strategy to break your mindset there at the, the class I just taught in uh, Florida. There's a, there's a couple examples in there. Again, it's an erroneous exclusion class. And there's a couple examples in there where the orientation is not obvious from the latent and um you get these you know you're you're taking this one latent you're going through 10 fingers trying different orientations to see which way it fits and um uh one of the attendees you know was asking questions and said all right I've, you know i've picked out my this is my first target group nice little spur off to the side couldn't find that then i picked this other target group more of a generic you know uh two or three endings uh, all kind of near each other couldn't find that i said well tell you what take your um exemplars all 10 fingers because um all 10 fingers turn them all upside down and i know you're latent you're gonna have to rotate whichever direction but just have the exemplars upside down to break that instant mindset of i'm gonna go look here because you have that tendency to go back to where you already looked before instead of searching new areas yeah and I swear less than five minutes later, all of a sudden he's got a big grin on his face and is, is uh, and he's pointing on to his, uh, his paper. So, yep. um, you know, th- tips like that combined with something like this, and then maybe additional research along these lines, uh, I think can be really valuable for examiners and finding out what works to, if you're stuck in a mindset of, I can't find this, what can you do to break that so that you can find it when it's there? 
Yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll echo that. Pat Wertheim used to teach that specifically. Like, that was one of his big things that he would force people to do. He'd make them show what target group that they were looking at yep. and then ask them their second one and then, like, correct them and go, no, 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 never choose a second target group close to your first one. The first one's not there. Well, your, your second one a millimeter away is probably not going to be there. And you force them to go to yep. the other side of the latent print and then a third one and kind of triangulate the entire latent. And and exactly as you described, he would always say they'd go back to their desk five minutes later. You'd see that look on their face and go, found it. There it is. Um, yeah, it, 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 I mean, it's it's a tried and true technique now going on 30 some years that, <laughs> you know, that. It, but you're right. It's. Examiners need to be taught that. Examiners need to know that, and just continue to reinforce that. Well, and and have that experience where it worked, yeah. you know, so they Agreed. can they can you know go back and use it again themselves. Yeah, good point. Okay, I want to talk about Figure Nine here, Glenn. This is the timeline graph. This is the, this yep. is the coolest thing. So uh, they they break out uh, on these rows. Um, the each row is kind of a different person accomplishing this task. Um, you got the the length of their analysis time. That's in gray. And then yeah. as soon as you hit comparison, it switches over where it can either be gray, you're still looking at the latent. Blue, you're looking in the known print at the right area, in the, in the right little box in the known print. Or red, you're looking at the known print but somewhere else outside the box in some other area. Right. And it is so cool to go through and you can see each person's progression, um, especially in the last 10 seconds of comparison section Yeah, yeah. where you go, okay, wrong area, latent, wrong area, latent, correct area, latent, correct area, latent, correct area. Boom, you know, confirm. You're, you're, yeah, I got it. Yeah. Um, or, yeah, it's, it's, it's self-correcting. It, it just keeps calibrating. Nope, not here. Nope, not here. Not here. Oh, wait, maybe. Uh, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. Uh, boom, there it is. Yeah. Or just um, a long stretch of you know the, the correct area and then a few back and forth. Back to latent, back to the correct area, back to latent, back to the correct area. All right, good and done. Get found it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just such a, such a cool visual layout of what we're doing yep. as we search for find and then confirm that this is the right area to look for yeah uh, on that same graph too i love how in the cropped one so much more time is being spent in the known impression which tells me that we are truly memorizing a little bit we are taking that little snapshot of the latent and we're searching for it. or otherwise it should be fairly equal or maybe even more going back to the latent all right looking at it again coming back to the known but i think once we get a nice little snapshot in our head it's clear we're spending much more time searching for it in the known print before we ever go back to the latent to look at it again that itself it will tie into something i'm going to say here in a few minutes but i i really love that aspect of it yeah, even on the page before, they, they specify that examiners generally spend more time during the comparison phase looking at the unknown, sorry, the known image, the yeah. right-hand image. Um, it, it, let's see, especially for the cropped task, 82% of all your comparison time is in that right-hand image. Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, it's still high, but not quite that high. 76 for the plain images and 67 for the latent um, tasks. Again, for these are what's the what the latent is. The known is the same for all three. But um, that's a, that's a great example of. Now this is this is the comparison time from when you you know end analysis of your target group and then and then. Go from begin looking for your target group until you say to the, uh, the the test administrator, "I found the target group." So the confirmation of doing the entire identification isn't measured here. It's just until you confirm that you're sure that you found the target group uh, in that uh, exemplar image, and so a lot of that is the searching, looking around. So you're right; we've memorized that that latent overall. We occasionally need to refresh that by looking back to it. But most of that is searching for and then seeing the details uh, in the uh, in the exemplar. Yeah, it's incredible. 
So here's where they get a little bit more mathy on us, um, as the you know statisticians are wont to do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They they do jump into the the math here a little bit. Um, and one thing we're not gonna. There's no need for us to jump into it. But for any ROC nerds out there who love some hot <laughs> rock curve talk, uh, they they do refer to the a rock curve a little bit, and they note that the speed of the eye movement and the percentage of fixations in a particular cell are kind of the two major predictors of behavior and outcome. And they show that uh, those two things work together real well and that when you look at those two factors, you get your, your kind of your maximum area under the curve as an estimator of the outcome. And then they show that all the other factors they looked at eh, contribute, but there's probably a lot of overlap, but those are the two primary things, the speed of your eye movement moving around and then how much time you spend in a particular actual cell that they have um, they saw that your eye was fixated on. Those are the two you know, major factors to finding that target group. So if you know anything about rock curves, there's, there's, some, there's some great references to rock curve stuff. Rock out. Rock out. Yeah. yeah. Rock on, brother. So they... They defined some subphases of the trials here in order to, to parse out some more of the data. Uh, subphase A is the t- the period at the beginning of the comparison before you find you look at the correct target area in the known. So when you're kind of looking in other places, and then subphase C is at the end of the comparison phase when you're only now looking at that target area. Um, you know, in the correct area in the in the um, in the the exemplar and the known impression. You know, again, looking back, maybe occasionally to the latent, but you're only looking at that uh, correct area. And then uh, B is any time in between A and C. So, with that kind of a generic timeline breakdown, um, they then started looking at well, how does the behavior change? Um, when you're looking at these three different kinds of unknown impressions, latent, plain, or cropped. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the most common scenario for the latent impression and plain impression is that you quickly found the target impression and then you only looked at that target impression. Uh, while the most common for the cropped latent, quote-unquote latent, or unknown, is that you took time you took some fine time to find the correct target location and then you stuck and only looked there um with second place for that cropped impression is that you took some time to find the target then you also looked in other areas and then you kind of came back and then looked only in the target area while the um for the other two very common was you just went straight to the correct location without even quickly finding the target, but just only finding the target and boom, you found it right away. Uh, so very different kind of behaviors overall that you can describe from breaking yep. these, uh, these eye fixation tasks into little sub phases. Yeah. And I, I will say that the, the one thing, I mean, I, I have almost no criticism at all of this paper. <laughs> the one thing I would love to have seen here as a comparison to lay people that to me would have just sealed the deal on wow this because it's how you demonstrate expertise is by always comparing to a novice who doesn't have this training or ability it would have been great to have had a, a lay person comparison going into this these subphases i love these little these little descriptions um looking at what's going on in subphase a is these the examiners usually have these fast eye movements with fixations far apart and very little back and forth to the to the latent where you're just doing the scanning of where is it but subface c at the end you now usually have slow eye movement the fixations very close together with a very detailed back and forth to the same location and in indicating detailed work consistent with the am i sure period of deciding um that you found the correct target the, again just very interesting stuff that they're able to parse out here. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to mention as we wrap this up is that for those of you who attended the IAI last year in San Antonio, uh, 
Austin and Brad were presenting some of these data. Now, they were presenting actually a much broader study. This is only a portion of these data because, as as you might recall, Eric, I think you, you were at that presentation. You know, they had other tasks such as, um, you know, looking at actual comparisons and, and – and wasn't as focused as this. So right. I, I suspect that this will be one of many papers coming out. And I am actually hopeful that maybe they even did collect some layperson data. But in this paper, it's it's 20 pages long, but it's just focused on this one part of the study. I suspect we'll see other papers in the future. Uh, absolutely. Even in this, they, they mentioned some of the other tasks that were going on uh, at the same time. This this was one task that uh, examiners were asked to do, one set of tasks they were asked to do in that time frame, but mixed in were, uh, were other tasks as well. Um, so I, I, after reading this, I'm, I'm ready to, to see what's next. Um, yeah, agreed. I know we, we had some discussion last summer on, on the, uh, some of the things that came out in that presentation, but from this information published here, uh, absolutely love, uh, yeah. What uh, what they've seen and and I think I have just enough time to uh, to get it into my PowerPoint for uh, next week's class in Idaho. Cool, that, that's great. Well, I so, mean that's just such an endorsement of what of how much we both like this. Yeah. Now, uh, as we wrap us up, any final thoughts on it or? Um, again, just uh, I would definitely encourage people to uh, to to read through it. Um, you know, towards the end, like I said, it gets a little mathy with uh, with degrees of freedom and and regression models and uh, rock curves. Uh, but um, even if you don't want to go that deep into the math, uh, there is still plenty to uh, to learn and understand and to uh, be impressed by and to recognize as as you know feeling like what happens when you do a comparison. So. Uh, those kinds of papers are always, I think, the best kind, you know, reinforcing uh, and providing evidence to what we already kind of feel intuitively. So, um, uh, you know, again, kudos to the team there and uh, and can't wait to, again to read uh, the next one that comes out. Cool. So a- after this paper, I actually just wanted to share something with you, and we've never discussed this before, and I and you, you know how I like to make things about me, so I, I'm going to tell a little, little story okay. about about some research I conducted in my my thesis, and and again, this is probably the only time I'll ever talk about it because it just never comes up. So some of the things in this study actually I tested in 2004 in a very crude, very crappy study. Let me emphasize: this is, <laughs> I mean, this is you know, this is NASA level creating a rocket ship to the moon as opposed to my popsicle stick model with glue and, you know, Elmer's glue and some tape. Okay. I want to make that very clear here. Although what's crazy is some of the things in this study I observed in 2004 in the in this study. And so in 2004, I did the study at live at St. Louis at the IAI, uh, the, the 100th anniversary or whatever. And not and not anniversary of the II, but hundredth anniversary of fingerprints in the United States. And one of the things that I did was I had all these examiners get together in a room, and uh, actually separate them into two different rooms. And I showed them images. And what I would do is I would show an image of a cropped latent print or a full latent print or whatever on screen. And I would vary the amount of time, but typically 15 seconds. And the image would go on screen. They'd have to memorize the image, and then they would never see it again. And then they had to look down at a set of fingerprint cards and look for that image and try to find it in there. And one of the things I, I quickly saw that surprised me, because it went, it went contrary to some of the things being taught them at that time, for example, they would always say with a target group, just focus on a small number of minutia, four or five minutia, and that's all you want. You don't want to inundate your brain with too much info. Just pick a tiny little localized group of minutia. But whenever I added actually more minutia, say eight, 16, or you know, a, a much larger part of the impression, the more I added, the better the examiner did. In other words, what I now realize what this study is showing is context they were able to find it better when they had that context. 
even even though in some of the four minutiae target groups they were really highly discriminating, that doesn't mean that they knew where to look for those. And that one of my conclusions in that in that research was how much information examiners quickly adapt, even though they're only looking at a small target group, they're using all this other context information. And it was clear, you know, based on some of the times that we were seeing when we adjusted the time, that even when we flashed it on screen for five seconds, they were still finding it. If you gave them a lot of information, they could still find it within the 30, you know, fingerprints that they had in front of them. And so if any reader's interest in seeing a crappy version of this study <laughs> go go check out in my thesis it's it's in chapter five and i almost i mean i really debated whether or not to put that in there because it's it's so unlike any other study i've ever done but it told me a lot about the comparison phase and how examiners are using information and so this was just wonderful confirmation of some some real crappy crude ideas i had cobbled together uh, you know many years ago but it was it was it was kind of cool to see that the same things are being repeated here that we take into account a lot more information than i think we ever realized and it's happening lightning fast yeah so essentially when they're when they're given more information it's not like it's not like they're memorizing where 16 minutiae are all in relationship exactly. to each other exactly. they're still like memorizing maybe four or five or so but then they, they also – what they're memorizing is where that is in relation to the core delta, yeah. which then lets them zoom in on where to look first very quickly. But then also keep um, – burn through all the cards quickly looking in just one specific area on each of the fingers. Yeah. So then since they're going through so quickly, they're also not forgetting those five or six chart groups. Well, if you were just having to look everywhere in each finger, by the time you made it through 30 fingers, you may have forgotten exactly what the target group looked like. Yeah, and it was one of the reasons I chose 4, 8, and 16 minutia because, you know, there's this theory that people, humans can't really memorize more than 7 or 8 distinctive things, you know, when they give them a list of things to memorize quickly. Right. And so – one one thing I theorized in the paper, which I, I think is probably wrong now, or at least need could be adjusted, was that maybe they weren't looking at 16 distinct minutiae. They were chunking the minutiae together, which allows you to memorize more. But even based on this paper and some other, you know, I'll say more evolved thoughts I have on the process, I don't think that's the case. I think you, you described it perfectly. We tend to focus on what small little area a couple of things we can memorize and then have a general, if you will, giant chunk. We just chunk together all the other information outside of that as an area, a focal group, a ridge flow, good enough to get moving here as opposed to, you know, I'm memorizing these four minutiae as one piece, these four is another piece, and these three is another piece. But it's possible. Maybe we do chunk together more than we ever realized or... And I'm not real sure how we do it, but there has to be, like you say, some some absorbing of more global information on, in, in, in the context of where it is. Yeah. Uh, let's, as we close things out, um, Glenn, you're going to be in Switzerland here for a, a bit. Uh, after that, um, people can go to Ron Smith & Associates. Uh, dot com and find your next class yeah we've we've added a couple of classes i just real briefly want to you know let people know about um the the one big one of course is this testimony class in the denver area which will be september 16th through the 18th that one is going to fill please go to ronsmithandassociates.com to register for today and we're also adding a new class a technology class i kind of only mentioned it in passing but we're now actually opening it to the public we had only done it for small groups before but now we're doing an open class where students come for three days they uh, are working off of a laptop that we will provide and the laptop on the first day we're, we're dealing with software like ulw and gimp the second day, we're dealing with Case APHIS, so they get a chance to run things through Case APHIS and learn how it works. And the third day, they get to run a statistical model, a score-based likely ratio statistical model of Switzerland, and run some latent prints through that. So it's three days of using technology to enhance ACE-V, and that's going to be September 10th 
through the 12th in the Chicago area, actually in downtown in the, in the, in the loop. And so if you're interested in taking a class like that and really learning about how technology can help your ACB exams, September 10th or the 12th, go to ronsmithandassociates.com. Well, for me, I want to first say um, in August uh, at the IAI conference in Reno, Nevada, uh, I'm going to be teaching a, uh, a workshop on gyro and Photoshop. Uh, it's kind of the shortened four-hour version of the, the two-day class I just taught last month. Uh, so if you're interested in in learning how to do more uh, in in the same or even less time than it usually takes you to mark out things in Photoshop, uh, go ahead and sign up for that. Um, and then I don't have locations yet, but um, I'm fairly confident in uh, an exclusionology class uh, September 30th through October 2nd, um, and then another one in the uh, the second week of November. Um, so keep checking back at rayforensics.com as I get the locations for those uh, finalized and uh, posted online. Uh, so with that, uh, don't forget uh, doubleloopodcast.com, at doubleloopod, Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com, Eric at rayforensics.com. Boy, the list of things to mention every week is just it's growing longer and longer. If only there was some way I could record myself just saying it once and then play it back each time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't figure it out. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, you know, let us know what you think of the websites, uh, at, or the website, uh, or the the, uh, the Twitter account. Emails any questions or follow up stuff that you have, uh, and um, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you also want to contribute um, to our Patreon, go to patreoncom podcast. Uh, or also or contact us if you have an idea of how you want to help out joining the the double podcast team being our uh, facebook moderator or helping us design merch uh, with uh, you know logos and t-shirt ideas and stuff uh, we'd uh, we'd love to have help with that as well with that uh, the comments and opinions on this show are those of the speaker not anyone that we might work for and talk to you guys next time Hi, everybody. Have a good week.